Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest this week is Dr. Sanam Vakil, deputy director of the Middle East North Africa program at Chatham House, where she leads project work on Iran and Gulf Arab dynamics. Sanam is also the author of Action and Reaction, Women and Politics in Iran. Sanam and I are going to be talking about Iran. The seventh round of talks in Vienna to restore Iran's 2015 nuclear deal concluded last week. And while there may have been some incremental progress, the parties remain apart. The Biden administration's position is Compliance for Compliance for a Return to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or Iran nuclear deal. And what they mean by that is that Iran will get sanctions relief once it returns to complying with constraints on its nuclear program outlined in the JCPOA and that are enforced by the International Atomic Energy Agency or IAEA to assure that Iran does not acquire a nuclear weapon. Some background, U.S. President Donald Trump withdrew from the JCPOA in May 2018 and reimposed and added new sanctions on Iran, which affected Iran's ability to export oil and engage in international trade and finance, hurting Iran's economy. Iran responded by accelerating its production of highly enriched uranium, which is required to produce a nuclear weapon, and by employing advanced centrifuges at at least one nuclear facility. While the IAEA does not believe Iran is attempting 90% enrichment required for a bomb at this time, it puts the level at about 60%. The nuclear watchdog agency is also clear that Iran's lack of compliance has seriously compromised its oversight of Iran's nuclear program. And what was seen last week as a positive step, Iran agreed that the IAEA could be allowed back into a contested facility to replace cameras that were damaged or destroyed in the June sabotage attack that Iran blamed on Israel. But Iran also wants a period to verify the lifting of sanctions and guarantees that the U.S. will not renege on the JCPOA accord again. As a former party to the JCPOA, because the U.S. withdrew from the deal back in May 2018, the U.S. is not in the room in the Vienna talks, but it's very much in the building. A senior State Department official said last week that the negotiations this round went, quote, better than it might have been because there was some modest progress. But the focus here and emphasis is on modest. And the U.S. official added that the talks are, in essence, back to where they left off in June, the last round of talks under previous Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. We don't have months, but rather weeks to reach an agreement, the European Union's coordinator of the talks, Enrique Mora, said Friday. We will discuss all of this and more with Dr. Sanam Vakil, and that conversation begins now. 
Sanam, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you for having me, Andrew. The seventh round of nuclear talks wrapped up in Vienna Friday. I laid out some of the details in, in the opener to our segment today. What do you see as the greatest obstacle to a deal? And can a deal still be reached? That's really the $10 billion question, Andrew. And I see the principal issue being uh, what is oftentimes referred to in the press as guarantees, but should be more thought of um, as assurances or insurance. Uh, from Tehran's perspective, it is looking for insurance that will guarantee its return to the deal um, and protect it from being compromised should a future U.S. administration withdraw from the nuclear agreement again. Uh, and this concept is very hard, uh, I think, for all of the parties to get their head around because the United States um, the Biden administration sees this in, in the context of a treaty, which, of course, is uh, not an easy sell uh, in, in the climate of U.S. politics today. And, uh, you know, the politics around Iran is even more sensitive. Uh, but I think it should be um, thought of uh, a bit more broadly. Iran and the United States have deep divides uh, between them. There is almost uh, no trust, particularly after the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA in 2018. And uh, Tehran uh, doesn't have the confidence uh, to return to the nuclear agreement without some protection. And, uh, you know, this, I think, is the main uh, crux of the issue. Everything else can be negotiated and resolved. But this issue requires some creative thinking. Uh, and it is really complex, uh, as you mentioned, the idea of a, a treaty, because a treaty would require Senate verification. The Biden administration is unlikely to go down that road. It's expressed no interest in doing so. So how could it present to Iran the position that, hey, uh, you have that insurance, as you describe it, that this deal is solid? I think that the analytical community and uh, government experts have been trying to put their heads together, coming up with uh, creative mechanisms that can provide Tehran with the quote unquote assurance that it needs. Um, some solutions, of course, have been proposed to uh, bolstering INSTEX, uh, the special purpose vehicle that would facilitate trade. Um, the Biden administration, I think, has put forward ideas of further. Uh, OFAC licenses that would allow for trade um, to outlast its administration. Uh, commitments could be made from European countries as well as Asian countries to uh, effectively MOUs guaranteeing uh, purchases of Iranian oil. Um, and I think that the uh, Gulf Arab states are also throwing their hat into this pot offering to commit uh, to investments in Iran as well. So you know, this is, I think, a broader international um, uh, investment in, in trying to come up with what assurances would look like. Putting the treaty aside, uh, this is where the creative thinking, I think, really will have to unfold in Vienna. The Iranian government, and specifically the foreign minister, has said on several occasions that he would be looking for a, a 
or had hoped to see a goodwill gesture, the words he used from the United States, including uh, the allowance or the release of $10 billion or so in assets, especially given Iran's uh, economic situation, the context of COVID, et cetera. Do you see that type of gesture coming from the US and the EU as they work through these mechanisms and draft papers? Uh, not at the outset. I think that the uh, idea of releasing Iranian assets um, would be uh, perceived very negatively by the international community and also by countries in the Middle East that very much fear that Iran would use that money and disperse that money to uh, its proxy groups throughout the region. Uh, it, the release of that money, of course, could come over time and, and could be connected to the sequencing of compliance when Iran incrementally rolls back uh, the progress it's made uh, in its nuclear program in exchange for san sanctions relief and access to its resources abroad. But I, I don't see that happening um, at the get-go. And this comes back to, I think, the uh, essential missing piece here, which is trust. The Iranians are looking for this goodwill gesture to sell uh, their better, stronger hand and their position uh, to uh, Iran's conservative leadership that is skeptical of the JCPOA and skeptical of the United States. They feel very burned by the U.S. withdrawal in 2018 and are very worried that they'll get burned again. The Biden administration has championed the need for a united front in the Iran talks, and not just the EU, but also Russia and China. Has this strategy been effective in your view as you assess the latest round of talks? And how do you see Iran's relationships with Russia and China at this point in the JCPOA talks and more broadly? It's a good question. It's taken, I think, uh, quite a bit of time for uh, the P5 plus one countries, the US, Europe, Russia, and China to align. Um, and I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but we seem to be moving in that direction after this seventh round of talks have concluded. Uh, already there was frustration, I think, between Washington and, and the UK and Europe, uh, because European countries in the UK feel even more uh, insecure um, and concerned by the acceleration of Iran's nuclear program, uh, and uh, have felt a bit anxious that the Biden administration has taken a, a more casual uh, approach uh, to uh, the talks. And uh, so this has caused some tensions, but it seems that through the seventh round, uh, Europe and the United States have uh, demonstrated sort of a, a unified front vis-a-vis uh, -vis Tehran. Uh, but Russia and China each have their own unique, unique position. Both uh, are empathetic with the Iranian position. Both have tried to lobby for and call for the uh, removal of U.S. sanctions and, and goodwill gestures. Uh, Russia is taking a unique uh, position, perhaps bridging and sort of representing Iran uh, to uh, the uh, European, British, and American counterparts um, and presenting itself as uh, an interlocutor, if you will, um, and, and this has been uh, useful, particularly in the seventh round, in leveling the playing field. There was a bit of frustration, um, to put it mildly, again, that um, the Iranian negotiators were going to try to start 
negotiations over after the four and a half month delay. And, and the Russians really pushed uh, to uh, try and establish or reestablish um, all sides on um, the proposals uh, that um, they tentatively agreed to when the talks broke up in June. So that has been very important. China, on the other hand, um, is using uh, the JCPOA as part of its own sort of dynamic with the United States. Uh, China and Iran have a long history of uh, relatively strong relationships. And um, the Chinese, while having benefited from the Iran nuclear agreement, um, have not really articulated a strong position in defense of the JCPOA and, and have not tried to push Iran forward uh, in the talks. But it seems that through this seventh round, uh, China um, is um, coming out ahead um, and, and trying to steer, uh, steer the discussions in, in a bit more of a productive way. Um, ultimately, China, like Russia, would not like to see a further acceleration of Iran's nuclear program and equally would not like to see uh, a return uh, to the instability that we witnessed in the region in 2019 um, after Iran began to accelerate tensions and push pressure out um, into the Persian Gulf and, and around the region as well. How does Iran view the threats from Israel and Israel's calling for a tougher U.S. line toward Iran? And Iran score, does it constitute pressure with regard to their JCPOA negotiating position or deterrence more broadly, especially given Israel's ties now with the UAE and Bahrain and others in the region? And the Israeli dynamic is a very interesting one. And I think it's one that actually Iran tries to play to its favor. Uh, through uh, this period where the US withdrew and, and Israel has taken a more um, proactive role in uh, striking Iran um, in what is often defined as a shadow war that is also played out in cyberspace and in acts of sabotage with inside Iran that also saw uh, the assassination of Iran's uh, nuclear scientist, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, uh, the Iranians have responded um, by accelerating their nuclear program um, in reaction to each of these attacks and events. Uh, and so from Tehran's perspective, while, not, while they are not able to really um, prevent Israel from uh, uh, entering uh, Iran, developing connections, uh, including perhaps even intelligence connections, which I think is uh, hugely threatening, um, they have uh, developed a response um, that has a pushback against Israel. Um, and so they feel that they are checkmating Israel in, in a certain way. Um, and this is playing out, I think, in a conscious way, um, giving Iran a, a sense of uh, satisfaction that um, it, it has developed tools um, by accelerating its nuclear program to uh, prevent Israel uh, from uh, further uh, striking out at Iran in a, in a direct way. What can you tell us about Raisi's government so far? beyond the nuclear talks. He seemed to come to power following a stacking of the deck by the principalists over the last few years against the Iranian reformist party. 
how strong is Raisi's position and what are his priorities and challenges? And to bring it back to the nuclear talks, wouldn't an, an Iran deal and the lifting of sanctions be a huge boost for him and Iran's economy? In theory, you're right, Andrew. Um, a, a, a nuclear deal would relieve Iran of sanctions pressure um, and give a huge boost to the Iranian economy uh, that you know has suffered hugely over the past few years, and um, you know lift the hopes of Iranian people that have borne the brunt of sanctions pressure that are bearing the cost of inflation. Um, but and and here is I think an important but. Um, a return to the deal for a Raisi administration um, has to be under terms that protect the Raisi administration. And this goes back to the concept of insurance. Uh, the Raisi administration uh, doesn't want to be made vulnerable uh, in signing on to the JCPOA again, the same way that uh, President Rouhani was made vulnerable uh, by signing on to the JCPOA. So the Raisi administration is looking to one-up the Rouhani administration and get a better JCPOA, a more sustainable JCPOA. And only under those terms can it justify uh, trusting the United States again and risking uh, another round of uh, instability in the future. Furthermore, the Iranian economy since the U.S. withdrawal, of course, went into uh, a recession but has returned to growth. Um, at not a huge levels of growth, marginal growth of, of 2%, but uh, this growth is suggestive of the fact that it's resistance ec economic model that is designed to uh, diversify away from oil and boost domestic um, industry and services um, is paying off. Uh, so uh, the system uh, feels somewhat uh, resilient um, to sanctions in this current context. They also feel um, confident they have survived the worst um, for the principalists, for, for the hardliners, for Iran's supreme leader. Maximum pressure under President Trump was akin to economic warfare. And having survived that economic warfare, um, they feel confident enough uh, to be able to manage the country, uh, maybe not in, in a way that will lead to um, huge levels of growth or a sort of thriving Iranian economy. But uh, a, you know, a, this sense of survival is, is uh, satisfactory and, and perhaps enough for the political system right now. So too much change um, might be uh, uh, more than the Rice administration is ready for. And instead they're quite comfortable. They've just released their new budget. Um, and in this new budget doesn't sort of anticipate quick san sanctions relief at all. And I think that they're quite com comfortable trying to, uh, con to continue to invest in the resistance economy and um, at the same time uh, put forward a face of good governance, uh, pursuing anti-corruption, trying to develop stronger ties uh, with uh, different uh, constituent groups around the country, uh, and, and have uh, quite um, limited objectives rather than a, a huge agenda that, that might lead to disappointment. Let's turn to Iran's foreign policy. The Iraqi election results indicate backsliding with regard to Iran's support in, in, in Iraq. 
Uh, the Iraqi people seem tired of Iranian meddling and pro-Iran parties lost, lost ground in the, in the elections in October. How does Iran view the situation in Iraq? Uh, well, I think Iran in general and, and how it sort of manages its regional relationships, it plays a rather strategic long game. Um, it, it doesn't invest solely in one individual or one group, but rather, you know, takes a very diversified uh, approach to its portfolio of relationships. And uh, while, of course, it has been disappointed by the outcome um, of the Iraqi elections, it does have uh, strong enough relationships around the Iraqi political spectrum uh, that it that it can continue to uh, leverage those relationships and 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 thereby continue to be uh, an important influencer within the Iraqi political system. Uh, Iran is quite comfortable with uh, Prime Minister Khatami uh, staying in power um, and. I think the transition that we're seeing and witnessing um, in Iraq today is a shift from Qasem Soleimani's influence in Iraq to, uh, to one where Ismail Ghani, uh, Qasem Soleimani's successor, uh, is trying to institutionalize Iran's influence uh, less through his personality um, and less through uh, the relationship of one individual, but more through uh, the creation of a process. And that process is clearly going through sort of fits and bumps and, 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 and clearly uh, there, are, there are groups inside Iraq that are uncomfortable with this shift as well. And so you see um, to a certain degree more autonomy and, and certain groups uh, breaking out um, and uh, Iran, um, when Prime Minister Khadami's house was attacked, for example, very quickly uh, tried to uh, calm the scene and declare that it wasn't involved in, in this uh, assassination attempt to differentiate itself uh, from, from perhaps uh, the differences that were taking place on the ground. I think that the Iranian government is quite cognizant that it is um, external power and uh, it has to perhaps moderate the way it engages in Iraq, but at the same time, very much recognizes that its relationship and its diversified relationships in the country are, um, have been really instrumental in protecting Iran through the period of maximum pressure and sanctions. And it's Iran's economic ties also to Iraq um, that have helped it sort of weather that very difficult storm. So uh, I, I would argue that Iran is repackaging and it's this repackaging that is a bit awkward and uncomfortable, um, but they're going to try to uh, perhaps rebrand themselves uh, for better or for worse, but uh, you know, they're not moving. How do you see the recent shift to regional diplomacy between the UAE and uh, Iran? in the Iraqi-facilitated discussions between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Where do you see all this going? These are very interesting developments. And, and of course, the UAE uh, was far ahead of uh, other regional states um, commencing its own outreach with Iran uh, in uh, the summer of 2019 after uh, attacks were seen in, in uh, the port of Fujairah. Um, and the UAE uh, very quickly and quietly uh, de-escalated, sending a delegation to Tehran. And since then, uh, outreach has continued. Most recently, uh, Tahnun bin Zayed uh, visited Tehran 
just uh, um, a few days ago, for example, uh, to continue that dialogue and uh, to continue that sort of messaging. Um, since then, of course, we've seen this Saudis and the Iranians engage in a number of rounds of dialogue facilitated by the Iraqis. Um, and I think this um, brings to light a pattern of the escalation and recalibration uh, that we're witnessing um, after um, that very uh, stressful uh, period of 2019 where Iran um, began to uh, export instability to the region uh, where Iran was behind a uh, number of uh, uh, attacks in, in the Persian Gulf and uh, I think the September uh, 2019 attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities were also a huge turning point, um, leading to a sort of a re-evaluation um, also through COVID and the economic downturn. So, you know, all states and perhaps have been equally vulnerable and this has provided an opportunity to de-escalate. Um, but I'm a bit skeptical that which we see progress um, on the JCPOA or significant progress on our uh, regional um, de-escalation with um, uh, moving on words and actually agreements being uh, put to paper uh, that this is just a, a sort of moment and, and um, quickly we could return to tensions. Um, I, I really very much see um, the JHDOA as an important pathway to broader de-escalation um, and, and without any progress there, it, we could very easily return uh, to tense times in the future. And what's the deal for Iran in Yemen? What would it take for Iran to push Ansar al-Islam, the Houthis, to cut a deal or to put it another way, to get behind the, the UN brokered peace process? Uh, that's a really difficult one. I, I personally have, have long thought that the Yemen talks um, should be connected uh, actually to the Vienna discussions um, and packaged as a broader regional uh, and JCPOA um, uh, de-escalation. Uh, you know, we could call it uh, uh, JCPOA plus if you'd like, um, but it speaks to, um, I think, asymmetry regional dynamics between Tehran and Riyadh. Um, of course, Tehran has a relationship with the Houthis, but not a command and control relationship with the Houthis. And without that command and control, um, it, Iran doesn't have that ability to influence the Houthis on the ground in such a meaningful way and push them to the negotiating table. Um, but for Iran to, to play a productive role in, in Yemen, excuse me, um, Iran would have to, I believe, be incentivized in another theater. Um, I, I don't see Saudi Arabia or the Gulf states um, having those necessary incentives um, to push Iran um, to make concessions or to call for um, negotiations in, in Yemen, but rather it would be the United States and uh, the P5 plus one that have the uh, necessary incentives that could motivate Iran. So by linking up these two uh, very important uh, discussions, um, that's where I think Iran could play a meaningful role. But above all, I don't actually see Iran uh, 
picking up or, or leaving Yemen or abandoning its relationship with the, with the Houthis. This has been a sort of low cost, but very high return investment for the Iranians. And I think it's one um, that they're going to continue uh, to support, uh, really, because to them, uh, the Houthis um, are on track uh, to take control of North Yemen. And with that, Iran will have a long-term influence in Saudi Arabia's backyard, thereby um, giving Iran uh, uh, a negotiating chip, a permanent one vis-a-vis -vis the Saudis. Uh, so I, I think that the Yemen talks have to be framed in, in, a, in a different sort of context where we acknowledge that Iran um, is got to be part of uh, the uh, discussions, the peace settlement, uh, and the negotiations. And I think that's a very hard pill uh, for uh, Saudi Arabia to swallow. Tanam, last question. How is Iran managing the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan? We read about uh, that Iran is turning back refugees at the border. There have been concerns about the drug trade. How do you see that relationship evolving? The return of the Taliban um, has been a very difficult um, one for uh, one issue for Iran to sort of square. On the one hand, of course, they were uh, uh, celebrating the U.S. withdrawal and, and that um, the embarrassing optics. Um, but at the same time, uh, Iran then had to assume responsibility for uh, a security situation on its border. Iran houses the largest uh, Afghan population and doesn't have a history of treating its Afghan population uh, very well inside the country. And as you mentioned, um, uh, there is a refugee crisis, a drug problem, and a tense history with the Taliban that goes back to the 1990s. Um, Iran is trying to be hugely pragmatic here. Um, calling um, on the uh, international community and the donor community to support Afghanistan stability uh, and to prevent um, uh, that uh, any sort of instability from spilling over into the neighborhood. And so it's trying to be a productive actor in this field, um, while at the same time uh, maintaining its influence in Afghanistan, uh, which it ha has built also uh, through uh, through the recent years, and also leverage um, its economic ties on Afghanistan's borders um, in the same way that it has in Iraq uh, to uh, uh, push back against U.S. sanctions, uh, to access a foreign um, currency abroad, um, and uh, to engage in trade. Uh, so this is a very um, precarious situation uh, for Iran, uh, one that I think um, the political and security establishment think that they can um, have a hand on, but it will require significant coordination with all of Afghanistan's neighbors and require Iran to bear a huge level of responsibility uh, for uh, Afghanistan uh, going forward. Sanam, thank you for joining us today. I always learn from you and your writing. It was a pleasure having you with us on, on the Middle East. Thank you for having me, Andrew. We will return after this short break. Hi, I'm Elizabeth.
Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Sanam Bakil and our production team of Phil Coabro of Almonitor and Beowulf Rockland of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our El Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. First, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest this month is Sultan Saudo Qasimi, founder of the Bargil Art Foundation and co-author and editor of the book, Building Sharjah. On Israel with Ben Caspit, his guest this week is Axios reporter and author Barak Ravid. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where Amber and Zaman will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening, and please continue to stay tuned to almonitor.com to stay up on events and trends in the Middle East. <laughs>